Today we are beginning um, like a little short mini-series for the resurrection entitled Behold the Man. And over the course of the next several weeks, what we're going to do is um, explore this phrase, Behold the Man, and today to be Behold the Man Foretold, uh, prophecy from Isaiah 53. Next week, it'd be Behold the Man in His Triumphal Entry, the Palm Sunday. Um, on Good Friday, our, our, our event, our perspective will be Behold the Man on the Cross. And then on Resurrection Sunday, it would be Behold the Man in His Resurrection and Glory. And that's going to be our, our theme, our, our, our theme and our, where we're going to be going over the next several weeks and all. This phrase, Behold the Man, if you want to follow along with me on that, it's from John 19. John 19. And leading up to John 19, what has happened, just to kind of uh, set the stage for it, um, what has happened is that Jesus has been in the garden, right? And he's been praying there. We know that, right? And then what has happened there is Judas comes and he betrays him. And then immediately the soldiers come to arrest him. And as the soldiers come and arrest him, all of his friends abandon him. And he's taken to the Jewish authorities where they've paid witnesses to come and lie about him. So these witnesses, these people of, of, of truth, come and they lie about Jesus and bring false accusations against him. And so he's beaten and he's interrogated by Jewish authorities. And then by this time, Peter has denied him. So this one particular apostle has abandoned him and now he's denied him three times. And he's sent to Pilate. And the intention of sending to Pilate is to orchestrate a scenario where he, where Jesus will be executed. And that brings us up to um, John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail the king of the Jews! And they gave him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. You know, there's debate about behold the man, whether that was a, a question in a sense of where Pilate was saying, this man, this man is guilty. And there are others who say that he was coming out and he was saying, this man, this man is a king of Jews. This is the best you got. An accusation, a scornful kind of mocking statement about him. And there's those who have take sides on both sides of that. I'm suggesting that, um, that this morning, and for our time here, that we are taking that as a statement of his innocence. As a matter of fact, these words, um, behold the man, I'm taking it as like a, a setting the stage, an exclamation for Jesus you know, behold the man, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Good Shepherd, the Alpha and Omega, the Bread of Life, the only begotten Son of God. Behold that man. 
And I'm suggesting that he's worthy of our attention and of our praise. And in this season of his suffering and his resurrection, his life comes to this pinnacle. His life comes to the very climax of all that he came for. One that has been spoken of for centuries before he arrived and one that he is expected to return again. That man, we are saying, behold that man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, in the book of Acts, please flip over there with me there to chapter 8. And there you find a story you're very familiar with that connects us to the, the prophecy we're going to be looking at today. And there in chapter 8, we read in verse beginning, in verse 26, about Philip, one of Jesus' disciples. And the Lord instructs him to a particular road. And he arrives there, and there is an Ethiopian minister. He was the minister in charge of all the wealth of Ethiopia. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he's leaving Jerusalem to go back home. And as he's going in his chariot, he's reading. And Philip sees him coming, and he sees him reading, and he hears him reading. And what he hears him reading is this. He was led like a sheep to slaughter, like a lamb that is silent before his shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who would describe his generation his life is taken away from the earth. And the Ethiopian, and Philip says to him, do you know what you're reading? And, and, the, and the eunuch answers him and says, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? You can see this in verse um, 34 and 35. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and begin with this scripture, he preached Jesus. Behold the man. He preached Jesus. Hundreds of years before this incident with this man that was recorded in our Bible, hundreds of years before this happened, this Ethiopian minister is reading a prophecy that had been, made, taken, had been proclaimed. By the, by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 52 and 53. So now flip back to Isaiah with me. Chapter 52. And let's read it together. We, let's read it um, from beginning of chapter 52, verse 13, please. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so he, his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, and what had not been told, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? Chapter 53, verse 1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the one from whom men hid their face. He was not despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore himself and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was cursed, crushed for our iniquities. 
The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with the rich men in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he, would, he will see his offspring and they will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and they be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That is a beautiful, beautiful passage. Many have called this, I read, the most important text in the Old Testament. And they would cite that there is some confirmation of that since it is one of the most most, new, most um, cited passages in the New Testament. Portions of it are quoted word for word seven times in the New Testament. And then 26 times in the New Testament, it's alluded to. You, you hear them calling back to it and, and saying, do you remember this that was written? So here we are. It says, he will not be noticeable or readily thought of as important. Verse 2 says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. No stately form or majesty that we would notice him. Nothing about him would have caught our attention. That phrase, the tender root there, um, refers back to his childhood in Nazareth, his simple upbringing. No formal education, no name recognition, no following, no reputation. And so in other words, his upbringing was unpromising and of no distinction. In general, there was nothing about him portrayed worth, a prom, worth or promising. He was indistinguishable on the masses. He blended in. Perhaps you'd say he was invisible, unnoticeable. No one would remember him until much later. Much later, when his appearance has been marred and his form has been misshapen, verse 52, or chapter 52, verse 14, this man of no renown later was pierced through. Verse 14, how does it say it there? Um, so that um, many were astonished by you, my people. So his appearance was marred. More than any man in his form, more than, any, more than the sons of men. And if you look through the passages to hear how they describe him, you find that he is, he is pierced through, that he is crushed, that he's chastened, that he's scourged, that he's oppressed, afflicted, judged, 
put to grief. His soul was anguished. He was despised, forsaken, acquainted with grief, like, that of men, that, like one who men hide their face from. Finally, we did not esteem him. Finally, it says that he would bear their iniquities. And he, would, he, is, he, he is numbered with their transgressions. So, in this first window, in this first description of him, he's described as one that no one would look at. That you'd pass him on the street and never think about him. That he would be in your classroom and he'd be on the back row and no one would ever notice him. He'd be gone out of class and people would never notice he was gone out of class. He would live on your block and you'd never see him. Or if you saw him, you never interacted with him. He would be one of those kind of people that you might have on your block now. Someone that people knows he's there, but they don't know anything about him or any reason to know him or to reach out to him. So our first scenario that we're presented from the passage is, here's this one of no renown. And then the second way that he's described is, he goes from being one who no one notices, no one they, don't, they look at him and don't see him. And then it goes to, they look at him and they turn their face away from him. They look at him and don't see him. And now they look at him and look away from him. And so here he is, behold the man. This beaten, disfigured, unimportant, despised, afflicted soul. And that's what the passage says of him, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, verse 3. But then the next verse begins to unfold the story of his grief and sorrow, verse 4. Surely our griefs he bore himself, our sorrows he carried. Our grief, our sorrows he carried. Verse four, he, um, and then verse 5, it says that he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastened for our well-being. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 5 says he is scourged for our healing. So he's portrayed in, in, you know, in verses 3 and 4, his death in verse 5, his reason for death in verse 6, the way he died in verses 7 and 9, the result of his death in verses 10 and 12, and, fun, and also in verses 52, chapter 52, verses 13 and 15. This man who silently went before the shear became the servant who would sprinkle the nations. That's a reference to this ancient purification ritual where they were sprinkled to purify the people, to wash away their sin. And so he goes from being one that no one would ever look at and notice to one that they look at and turn their faces away to one who suffers for them and then blesses them. This same man became the sin offering for all of mankind, chapter 52.10, 53.10. And he justified the many in verse 11. And he bore the sins of many and interceded for their transgressions in verse 12. And so behold, the man is the lamb that take away the sins of the world. And because of this servant's service and sacrifice, now we have another window into him. Let's review it again. Behold the man that no one would notice, that no one would look at. Behold the man that no one would want to look at. Behold the man who suffered on our behalf. And then finally, here it is. Finally, here it is. In, verse, in chapter 52, verse 15. Behold the man that because of his service and his sacrifice, 
the kings will shut their mouths. In other words, their awe will silence them because he is greatly exalted. Behold the man exalted. Not looked at, turned away from, suffered for us, and now he's exalted. Behold that man. When Pilate said those immortal words, I think he was asking the question, look at him. What guilt is there in him? Hundreds of years before Pilate would say those words, Isaiah had laid out what would happen in the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus. You know, behold the man of no repute and no reputation. Behold him crushed for our iniquities. Behold him exalted by his father. And this is whom the Ethiopian was reading about. This is Jesus. When it says that, and, and Philip opened the word and preached Jesus. Philip was in this passage, and it was in this passage that he preached Jesus completely and totally. He didn't need to go anywhere else. This is Jesus, and in the next two and three weeks, what we're going to see is, is that he will enter the city next week on Palm Sunday. Sunday. Here we are, it'll be behold the man. And in that beholding of him, it will be all of these people rushing out and proclaiming him as being Messiah, as being a rescuer, as being a savior. But then by just a few days later, we'll come to him and say, behold the man on the cross, because all of those people who came out on, in the earlier part of the week and beheld the man as a savior, now behold him as a criminal. You have it here in the passage. By his stripes we are healed. By his, he, he took on the iniquities of us all. And then it says that he is exalted. And so let's say it's Monday. Let's say that the Palm Sunday. He enters the city and he's proclaimed. Everyone, all of a sudden, they, they pay attention to him. But then by Friday, by the end of the week, they have, they have scorned him. Interesting, isn't it? That the creation scorns the creator and rejects him. And then by Resurrection Sunday... We'll be saying, behold the man exalted in his glory. Behold the man who death could not hold down. Behold that man. That's where we're going over the course of the next several weeks. Warren Wisby says that, that this passage, this, this Jesus stands out in beauty and grandeur. But only because it reveals Jesus and it takes us to Calvary. J. Vernon McGree says that this is a photograph of the cross, saying that, the 50, that Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 give us a more vivid account of the crucifixion of Christ than is found in anywhere in the Bible. It says, this man is our salvation. He seems too human to be the hope that we needed. See, I think that that's what happened in that week of, of the Passion Week. Matter, matter of fact, let's just pause real quick and say that the Resurrection Week has a few confusing things about it. For instance, you know, for the longest time, I didn't understand, you know, the movie The Passion of Christ. I really didn't understand all that because it was horrible, you know. But the passion comes from a Hebrew word that means to endure. And so it's the endurance of Christ and all that happened that week. And then you come to Friday and you take the worst day in history and you call it good. And for a long time, again, I'm like going, what is good? 
what is good. And it was great for us. That is the goodness of it. Because in that, we reaped all the richness, all the blessings of Jesus and his Father on that day. So anyway, that's just a side note for you, all right? That was a bonus, all right? And so um, here we have this, the, uh, the photograph of the cross in that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah in 20, Psalm 22 give us a more vivid account of the res- crucifixion of Christ than is anywhere in the Bible. So this man, our salvation, he seems to be too human to be the hope that we needed. All hope rests in this unimpressive man. Our salvation is in him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine on that day when Pilate takes him and says, behold the man. You know, we think of him as being a whole man, complete man. But by the time Pilate says, behold the man, he had been beaten before the Jewish authorities. He had been beaten in the praetorium by the Roman guards. To try and appease the Jews, to try and get out of being in a situation where he had to to execute a man he thought was innocent, he had him scourged. a, A practice that many, many people never lived through that ripped the flesh off of one's body. And so can you imagine the disciples, if they were there? Can you imagine uh, Nicodemus, if he was there? And he most certainly was. Can you imagine anybody who was uncertain about who Jesus was and then to have Pilate say, behold the man. And they look at him and go, this can't be a Messiah. Behold that man. He is just a man. And he's barely a man left up there. Behold that man. Can you imagine their hope dwindling like a slow leak in a tire? Just slowly leaking out of them. Behold the man as he carried his cross to his own death. Can you imagine that man being the man that is the Messiah? The king of the Jews? Can you imagine that man on the cross and he gives up his last breath and you go, that was the man? And with that last breath, your hope went with him. When his life died, your hope died. Behold the man. Can you imagine being in that place, being there? One of our our Bible study methods is to consider the original reader Consider what they were experiencing. Consider what they were thinking. Consider what these words and this this experience was meaning to them. And so here we are. Behold the man. And all of that. Everything I just described to you is encapsulated in this one amazing chapter out of Isaiah 
All of that is here. All of that is here. And that is what is so amazing. And not only that, but it's not that it was amazing that it's all here, but it's amazing that it was here in detail hundreds of years before it happened. That in the good pleasure of the Father that he had planned for hundreds of years. We think about behold the man. We think about the triumphal entry. We think about the cross. We think about um, everything that happened in that week. We think about the resurrection. And all the way back to Genesis 3, we're told that there's a promise. We're told that, there, that the seed of, of Adam would crush the head of the serpent. All the way back to Genesis 3, it's pointing toward what we're talking about here that's going to happen in this week. All the way back to Genesis 15, when God says to Abraham, your seed will bless the entire world. And it's happening in this passage. And throughout Scripture, every time it's pointing forward, it's pointing to a Messiah, we find it in this passage until we find it in the person of Jesus. He is foretold over and over and over again. There is one coming. There is one coming. And then Jesus arrives. And then it is so appropriate, is it not, that Pilate doesn't know that he's the mouthpiece for God. Behold the man. And in that bloody mess is his glory. Behold that man. Jesus. The Messiah of the world, totally human, almost too human, probably for many who saw it. There was one poet who talked about how in those moments, the earth was crammed with heaven And every common bush was a fire from God. And yet none of them took off their shoes or saw it for what it was. And that's what the world has been doing. And when Jesus of Nazareth, the suffering servant of Jehovah, was here, earth was crammed with heaven and people ignored it and found all kinds of distractions. And so Isaiah 53 begins with the question, who has believed our message? Let's be clear, all of us have gone astray, it says. All of us have turned to our own ways, it says. But it was for us that our iniquity fell upon him and our sins were borne by him. And because of that, he has been exalted and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. See right there, when it says that in, in chapter 52, when it says that the kings will shut their mouths on account of him, all kings on the earth, in the earth, under the earth, are brought to a place where they cannot deny him. He is the Lord. He is the risen Messiah. And it's at that place where he's gone to one they won't look at, to one they can't look at, to one they can't turn away from. And every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. 
every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. Behold the man. That is the man that we speak of. That is the man that Pilate spoke of. That is the man who is our Lord and Savior. Amen? Let's pray. We behold you, Lord, in your glory. May we worship you for who you are. May we be be found faithful. We thank you for coming, for giving up and setting aside all that you had with your Father so you could come in humanity and be like us and then to suffer like us and then to suffer for us and then to defeat death for your glory and to be seated by your Father's right hand for your glory. And we look forward to the day when we will behold that man. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.